All right. Welcome, brothers and sisters, to another episode of Bible Question and Answer. Welcome to episode 22. We have several questions lined up for tonight. We'll begin with questions about heaven and earth. So we have basically two questions that are related, asked by the same person, and it goes like this. Number one, uh, in 2 Peter 3, 7 and 10, the heavens and the earth will be destroyed by fire on the day of judgment. But in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 4, the earth remains forever. Could you please explain? So apparently there seems to be a contradiction in scripture between these two passages. So let's go ahead and take a look at 2 Peter 3, 7 and 10 first and compare it to what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 4. In 2 Peter 3, 7 and 10, this is what it says. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And so in 2 Peter 3 verse, verses 7 and 10, the Bible describes for us what will happen on the day of judgment. And so what will happen on judgment day as explained by the apostle Peter. Bible says that the heavens and the earth will be destroyed by fire. And how did he describe the destruction of the heavens and the earth? He further said that the elements will be destroyed by fire. It will melt by fervent heat in other translations of the Holy Bible. The heavens will disappear with the roar and the earth will be laid bare. You know, when you look at the explanation here of the apostle Peter or his description, of this event, it sounds like a nuclear blast, doesn't it? Comes with a roar, the elements will melt because of fervent fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So certainly, according to the explanation of Apostle Peter, the earth will indeed be destroyed. Now, how does this compare with Ecclesiastes 11 and the, uh, 1 in the verses 4? This is what it says, generations come, and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And so according to the book of Ecclesiastes, the earth will remain forever, as though it would not be destroyed. And so there is an apparent contradiction between Second Peter and Ecclesiastes. So how do we reconcile this seeming or apparent contradiction? It's simple, really. We need to understand the scripture is a collection of books. How many books comprise the Holy Scriptures? 66 different books. It has the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, before we begin to understand the message of scripture, the first thing we need to do is ask ourselves, what kind of book is this? Because there are different books throughout the Holy Scriptures. There are books which are history. There are books which are poetry, some are prophecy, some are gospels, and some are explanation of the gospels through the letters of the apostles. So when we look at Ecclesiastes, what kind of book is that? Is it prophecy? Probably not. Could be, perhaps. Maybe it has some elements of prophecy, but it was not chiefly a book of prophecy. What category would Ecclesiastes fall under? It would be under the books of poetry. So Ecclesiastes is poetry. 
How about um, Second Peter? What kind of book or what kind of classification does it have? It's an epistle. It is a letter of the apostle Peter explaining to the followers of Yahusha the meaning of events that will take place and the meaning of events in the past and how it applies in the present. And so in the letters of the apostles, it's really a combination of a lot of things. And so we need to understand the difference between these two kinds of books. One's a letter from the apostles. The other is a poem. It's poetry. What do we need to understand about poetry? It uses a lot of metaphors, similes, and other figures of speech. And so we should not always take literally the things that are found in poetry. And so when we go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and the verses 4, when it says the earth remains forever, we need to understand the context so we can better understand the purpose and meaning of that statement. To get this done, we go, of course, to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 1 to 2. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Here in the introduction of Ecclesiastes, we discover the author and the thesis of Ecclesiastes, right? Who's the author? The teacher. Many identify him as Solomon, son of David, king in, king of Jerusalem. So it's Solomon. He's the author. What is his thesis? His thesis is everything is what? Meaningless. When we jump to Ecclesiastes 12, his conclusion was when he, he basically summarized what he discovered about the world, because Ecclesiastes contains his conclusions after experimenting, trying to find out what meaning is all about, and what his conclusion was, without God, the whole world is without meaning. And so the whole purpose of man is really to worship Yehovah our God. And so if your premise is there is no such thing as God, then the whole world is meaningless. And so that's his thesis. Without God, the world and all created things is meaningless. And so when he goes on in Ecclesiastes, he establishes um, the proof of his thesis. And so he goes to three and four. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And so what was one of the first points given by Solomon as he presented proofs of his thesis that without God, all things are useless. He says, look at the toils of man. Look at what he does. He works hard, but what happens to him? He dies. Somebody else benefits from what he has done. And so he compares the lifespan of man with the earth. And so when he makes that comparison, he goes on to say generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And so when he says the earth remains forever, it doesn't literally mean it's going to last forever. It simply is pointing out that compared to man, the earth is much more robust or stable. Now, 
to prove this point even further, let's check and look at the Hebrew word used for the term forever. Let's go to our favorite website, which is that again? Blueletterbible.org. And this is what we have. The phrase or the term forever is the Hebrew word olam 5769. What does it mean? It actually has different uses. For example, it could mean a number of things. It's used in the Bible in different ways. It could mean perpetual, never, time, ancient, always, long, more. When you look at the outline of biblical usage, number one, first entry, it says what? Long duration, old. And so when we look at Ecclesiastes and consider the context and purpose of this piece of poetry, and when we look at the purpose and theme of the author, it makes sense that the earth, when it's used there, right, when it says the earth remains forever, it's in reference to the fact it lasts a lot longer than human life. This is why the term the earth remains forever does not mean it's literally going to stay the same forever. It will eventually get old and perish. In Genesis chapter 6 uh, and the verses 4, that same Hebrew word is used for the word old. Those were the mighty men who were of old. And so it doesn't have the meaning of forever or eternity. And so the earth in Ecclesiastes 1 and the verses 4 um, does not mean it's literally going to stay forever. Eventually, it's going to perish and die. And how is it going to die and perish? Second Peter 3, 7, and 10. By the same word, the present heavens and the earth, it will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and everything in it will be laid bare. And so because all of this is going to happen to the earth, Apostle Peter now gives us the exhortation. Because if you read 2 Peter 3, he begins uh, by saying that the ancient world, the earth, was destroyed by a flood. This time, the earth will be destroyed not by a flood, but by fire. And so because this will happen, what is his exhortation? 11 to 13, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy in godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that they will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And so it is the exhortation of Apostle Peter after giving that grim warning that the heavens and the earth will be destroyed by fire. He says, since everything will be destroyed, what kind of people ought you to be? What does he want us to do as followers of Yahushua? To live holy and godly lives. Remember his exhortation, his letter is for the followers of Yahushua, the believers of the Mashiach. And he speaks to all of us today. And his admonition to all of us today, since we know the earth is falling apart because the whole earth is being weighed out, weighed down by its sins, it will be destroyed never to recover again. And so he, what he wants us to do is to live holy and godly lives. Okay, 
All right, let's go to the second question. On judgment day, the heavens and earth will vanish. What will happen to Yahuwah God who is in heaven? It's a logical question. If the heavens and the earth will be destroyed, then what happens to the heavens where God dwells? Well, let's take a look at chapter, Act. I mean, the book of Acts chapter 1, 9 to 11. Where exactly is this heaven where God dwells? After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud. While they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Yahushua has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. And so where is heaven where Yahuwah God resides. Bible says that Yahushua went up into heaven. This place called heaven, where Yahushua went up to, where is that heaven? It is the heaven where God dwells. So Yahushua went to heaven to be where God's realm is. So there is, in fact, a heaven that Yahushua will go to. Now, which is that heaven? Where God dwells in the book of 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 4. This boasting will do no good, but I must go on. I will reluctantly tell you about visions and revelations from the Lord. I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body. But I do know that I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. Things no human is allowed to tell. Here's the Apostle Paul. He speaks about his experience, his harpazo, him being caught up into the third heaven, which is this third heaven. It is the paradise where Yahuwah God dwells, where Yahusha is at sitting at the right hand of Abba. And so Apostle Paul calls this place the third heaven to distinguish it from the other uh, places that we call or commonly call heaven. You see, the Hebrew people believe in three levels of heaven. What's the first level? The sky. That's where the gases are, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen. The birds fly in that first level of heaven. If you go higher, you have the cosmos, the vacuum of so-called empty space, the firmaments of heaven. This is the second heaven. We still have access to the second heaven. We can see it with our telescopes. However, there is a third heaven that human beings have no access to. It's only by invitation. It's only by Yahuwah God bringing us into that place. And that paradise, that third heaven where God dwells, that's where Yahuwah God is when the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. Okay? Now just think about this. In the beginning, was there a heaven and an earth? There was no heaven and earth in the beginning. Right? Where was Yahuwah God dwelling if there was no heaven and earth? In his own place. Something that we have no idea what it, what it looks like. Hopefully, 
when the time comes, we'll be able to comprehend that mystery. And so to answer the question, well, where will Yahuwah be when the heavens and the earth are destroyed? Well, Yahuwah will be in his place where he is right now, in the third heaven in paradise, okay? All right, let's go to our next question. Hello, Pukajan. Is there any passage in the Bible that Yahuwah talked to Yahusha directly, like Moses, who can talk to Yahuwah directly in the Old Testament? And why Yahusha addressing Mary, woman, in the wedding of Kina and not mother? Good questions. Let's begin with the first question about Yahusha uh, speaking directly to Yahuwah Abba. Let's begin with Numbers 12, 6 to 8 to show you the distinction that Moses had with Abba during his ministry here on earth in Numbers 12, 6 to 8. And Yahuwah said to them, now listen to what I say. If there were prophets among you, I, Yahuwah, would reveal myself in visions. I would speak to them in dreams, but not with my servant Moses. Of all my house, he is the one I trust. I speak to him face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees Yahuwah as he is. So why were you not afraid to criticize my servant Moses? Can you see the distinction that Yahuwah God gave to Moses? How he was special? How he was not like other prophets? Yahuwah set him apart. And he even spoke on behalf of Moses. Yahuwah said of other prophets among you, I reveal myself by visions, by dreams, but not with Moses. With Moses, I trust him, so I speak to him face to face, directly. Not only that, Yahuwah says, he sees me as I am. He sees Yahuwah as he is. And so we can see the connection, the intimacy that Moses enjoyed with Yahuwah, that he was different. How about Yahusha? Did he also have this kind of special relationship with Abba? What do you think? Even more so. Why? Is it true that Yahusha directly speaks with Yahuwah? Look at what Yahusha said in John 12, 49 to 50. I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know his commands lead to eternal life. So I say whatever the Father tells me to say and so when it comes to Yahushua he's more dependent than Moses as far as what to say Yahushua says the father commands me what to say and how to say it this tells us they are communicating with each other otherwise what why would Yahushua say what he just said and so this tells us Yahushua has a strong connection with Yahuwah his father because whatever his father tells him to say, that's what he says. Before he speaks a word, it must first come from the father. Not only what to say, but even how to say it. And so we can see that Yahusha has a special relationship with Yahuwah. How special is that relationship? Because Moses was, quote unquote, the friend of Yahuwah, our God. And so when people uh, saw Moses, they know that Moses saw God. They know that Moses had a good relationship with God, with the Father. Well, how about Yahushua? This is, uh, I believe, uh, very similar to the question that is asked, because it was asked by, by Philip as well. 
Yahusha told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The one, no one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you will know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And so Philip and the other disciples together with Yahusha, I'm sure they knew the story of Moses, right? After all, the Jews, so-called the, the Hebrew people, they were followers of the laws of Moses. So they're familiar with Abraham, familiar with Moses. They know all about the special uh, position Moses had in the Old Testament, because wherever Moses was, you know, you, he, you, you, Moses can speak face-to-face -face with Yahuwah, our God. And so Philip Looking at Yahusha, well, if Moses was that special, how about you? Moses was able to bring Yahuwah to Israel. How about you, Yahusha? Can you also make the claim that you are a friend with God? And so Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. He wanted to see the Father, perhaps the same way that the people of Israel saw on Mount Sinai, the glorious presence of Abba. So what did Yahushua say? Let's read the book of John 14, 9 to 11. Yahushua replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip? And yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the father and the father is in me. Or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. And so what did Yahushua say when Philip asked, you want to see the father? Yahushua said, if you see me, you have seen the father. Why did Yahushua say that? Because Yahushua... And Yahuwah, the Father, and Yahusha were so perfectly one with each other. If you've seen Yahusha, you've seen Abba. Because everything Yahusha says, everything he does, is what the Father tells him to do. This shows that we have this strong connection, even more so than Moses and Yahuwah, right? This connection is so great and so intimate. Yahusha says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. That's why to see the son, to see Yahusha, is like to see the father. Because after all, Yahusha became the perfect image of Yahuwah Abba. So we know for a fact that Yahusha and Yahuwah communicated directly. And perhaps there's no mentioning of a dialogue that Yahuwah and Yahusha had, right? Like what we see in the Old Testament. But they don't need to dialogue because their communication is so intimate. Words just get in the way, right? Because one is in the other. The other is in the other. And so Yahusha is in Yahuwah. Yahuwah is in Yahusha. That's how close they were, okay? Let's go to the next question. Uh, next question. Why did Yahusha address Mary, the mother of Yahusha, woman, in the wedding of Cana and not mother? It's a good question. And I believe that's probably a question nobody dared to ask, but this person decided to ask the question. All right. And so let's go ahead and look at John chapter 2, 4 to 5, the wedding in Cana. Dear woman, 
that's not our problem. Yahushua replied, my time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. And so here's Yahushua, and he addresses his mother Mary as dear woman. And so the question is, why did he use woman and not mother? What we need to understand about Yahushua is he's a unique son. He's not the ordinary son a mother has. Do you believe that? He's not your ordinary son. <laughs> I know a lot of mothers here, they're going to say, you know, my son is special. <laughs> and we believe you. Every mother's son is special to her, right? And Yahusha is very special. And he is not your ordinary son. And Mary knew this. What's the proof? Let's look at Luke chapter 2, 33 to 35. Yahusha's parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but, will, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. And so what did Mary understand about Yahushua? He was very special. How special? First of all, how he was conceived. How was Yahushua conceived? Not through Joseph, but by means of the Holy Spirit. Number two, Mary and Joseph were instructed by an angel to give a special name to Yahushua, right? You are to name him Yahushua, because he is to be the savior of the world, the savior of the world from its sins. And so they know the purpose of Yahusha. And then we have Simeon. Simeon was promised by Yahuwah God that before he would die, he will see the Mashiach or the Messiah. And so he reveals these prophecies. He reveals to uh, Mary and, and Joseph what Yahusha is going to do. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He is the Mashiach that people were expecting to already come at that time. And so Mary understood his son was not ordinary. He is the King of the Jews. He is the King appointed by Yahuwah to set free people from the sin to enjoy salvation and life everlasting so having known that mary with this perfect understanding about who yahusha is let's go back to the wedding at cana in john chapter 2 1 to 3 the next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of cana in galilee yahusha's mother was there and yahuwah and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Yahusha's mother told him they have no more wine. And so the context is Yahusha and his disciples, together with Yahusha's mother, were invited at a wedding in Cana. Weddings were big events, especially among the Jewish people. What happened during the wedding reception? They ran out of wine. Here's Mary. What is she suggesting? 
she was probably thinking this was the perfect opportunity to show the world that her son was the Mashiach, right? It would have been the perfect time if he could perform a miracle because she knew he was capable. And so Mary's intention was to reveal that his son is the Messiah. And so when Mary suggested this to Yahushua, what did Yahushua say? John 2, 4 to 5, dear woman, that's not our problem, Yahushua replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. And so when Mary suggested that Yahushua do something about the, uh, the situation, there was no uh, wine for the reception. It ran out of wine. Of course, Yahushua could read the thoughts of Mary. And so what does he say to Mary? He says, dear woman. Why not dear mother? Two things. First of all, we need to understand what, when he used the word woman, it is not a rude statement or a derogatory remark. We have to understand all about idioms. What are idioms? These are sayings which are culturally based. For example, when somebody tells you, heads up, what does that mean? It basically means duck, right? And so stoop low because you might get hit. That's what it means by heads up. And so if you translate heads up into a different language from English to Tagalog, what does that mean in Tagalog? Heads up. Uh, it doesn't make any sense, right? Because it's an idiom. In Hebrew, the term woman was a term of endearment. And so Yahusha used the term woman as a term of endearment. Dear woman. Because he respected his mother. And so when he said dear woman instead of dear mother, it doesn't mean he was disrespecting Mary. Especially if we understand the relationship between Yahushua and his mother and Yahushua and the rest of the world. He was not your ordinary son. He was the son of God. And so Mary was subservient to and subject to who? Yahushua. This is why Mary understood this. And so Mary said, do whatever he tells you. And to show you that the term woman is not derogatory, John 19, 25 to 27, standing near the cross where Yahushua's mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, that's a lot of Marys. Uh, when Yahushua saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to his disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Take note, Yahushua is on the cross and he's about to die. And one thing we understand about crucifixion is when you're in that position, every breath is so excruciatingly painful. Every word that you that come out of your mouth has to be carefully thought out, right? Because those last words of Yahusha on the cross 
were some of the most important words because though the effort and the pain that you had to overcome to be able to come up with those words was immense. And so the words that Yahushua said, dear woman, he is your son. And to his disciple that he loved, he, he is your mother. And so Yahushua lovingly endorsed the care of his own mother to the disciple that he loved, John. And this is why Yahushua, when using the term woman, is not to degrade her but to show his respect for her because the term woman in the way Hebrew people understand it is a term of endearment. And why not just say, dear mother? That's because also Yahusha wanted to show his independence. He wanted to show that he came here with a bigger purpose that wasn't confined to just the relationship between him and Mary. And so she says, dear woman, that's not our problem. And take note, you can also make it appear that Yahushua is rude, depending on the intonation you use, right? Dear woman, that's not our problem. If you have that intonation, it's kind of rude. But if you go like this, dear woman, that's not our problem. That's different, right? And so why did Yahushua say, that's not our problem? Well, because he says further, my time has not yet come. This shows us everything Yahushua does depends on what Yahuwah tells him to do. This is why he's in constant communication with Yahuwah. And so there in John, in the wedding, do you think Yahuwah and Yahusha were, were communicating? Absolutely. They were communicating to each other. That's how close they are. This is why Moses and his relationship with Yahuwah is so different from Yahusha and Yahuwah. With Moses, for him to have access to the presence of God, he either had to climb all the way to Mount Sinai, or he had to go to the tent or the tabernacle, right? But with Yahusha, he could be in the wedding. And Yahuwah and Yahusha would be communicating. Here, Yahuwah is communicating to him. And so Yahusha says, it's not yet, my, my time has not yet come. It wasn't yet time for his glory to be revealed to the public. Not yet. Then why did Yahusha perform the miracle? If it was not yet time for Yahusha to reveal himself to the public, then why did he perform the miracle? Well, let's read verse 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Yahushua performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. And so when Yahushua performed the miracle in Cana, he revealed his glory, but it was not revealed to the public. You notice that? Who was it revealed to? To his disciples who were with him and so before revealing his glory to the public he wanted to first reveal it to his disciples so that they can place their faith in him because his disciples would be the instruments of Yahusha so that the glory and the purpose of Mashiach can be propagated to the ends of the earth okay all right let's go to the our last two questions, uh, dear brother John, I've been wanting to ask 
uh, this verse, brother, the prophecy of Isaiah regarding Christ Yahusha. I only remember it when I saw Brother Joe's post about it. This is uh, Brother Joe Ventilacion, by the way, and that's his Facebook link. Jay Ventilacion from Harvard uh, University. Is it Harvard or is it MIT? I think it's Harvard. Harvard, right? He's like a professor from Harvard. Okay, so I also read uh, his explanation about theophoric names, where he even posted Eliyahu. I guess the name Yahoo is now accepted by the former church. I was looking for Brother Michael's, uh, I think he's referring to Sandoval, Brother Michael Sandoval's like or comment, but couldn't find anything. My question for is, does Isaiah 9 verse 6 refer to Christ Yahusha's essence or divinity, or that's how others will call him in the future? Some claim that the verse supports Christ's hypostasis, or hypostatic union, being both God and man. Isaiah 9, 6, for, uh, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, thank you, Paul. So uh, I just wanted to comment first before addressing the question that was asked about the former religion, where we came from, whether or not they accept the name Yahoo as the name of God, I know for a fact, uh, because we discussed this before in Brother Bob's, uh, one of his episodes from what the Bible says, he clearly says, and this in fact is what, according to my understanding of INC's position regarding the matter, God does not have a personal name. So that's clear. That's INC stand. However, when we go uh, to the Facebook post that was uh, given by Brother Joe Ventilacion, he had this on his Facebook. This is was his article showed this. Okay, if you look at it on, on, on the upper, the, uh, the right, the right hand side, it says another good example is the prophet Elijah. His Hebrew name or his name in Hebrew is gives you the Hebrew name Eliyahu, which means the Lord is my God or my God is the Lord. And so, act, actually. The Lord is my God should be Yahuwah is my God, right? Or my God is Yahuwah. That's what it means. That's what Eliyahu means. And so Eliyahu is an example of a theophoric name, which means it's a name that contains the term God or the name of Yahuwah because it's a way of worshiping or giving glory to Yahuwah. And it also shows in some way the person's function or office, or what he will do in terms of that name. And so Brother Joe goes on to say, would Elijah qualify as God since his name contains the name of God in Hebrew? And so with no uncertain terms, uh, Brother Joe uses Eliyahu as an example to point to the name of God in Hebrew. In this case, it would be Yah. Who. You see, Yahoo is part of the Tetragrammaton. The Tetragrammaton is the name of Yahuwah, our God. And so you have variations. You have Yah, which also represents Yahoo and Yahuwah. And you have Yahoo, which is the core of the Tetragrammaton. And in Eliyahu, we have here a, a theocratic name. 
And so Eliyahu is being identified as one who recognized Yahuwah as his God. Truth is, Eliyahu is just one of literally hundreds of names that contain the name of God. Here's a sampling, a sampling, a small sampling of the number of names that contain the name Yahoo, who do Yah, right? Kanan Yahoo, Kan Yahoo, Kunan Yahoo, Mak Yahoo, Achaz Yahoo, Ak Yahoo, Adan Yahoo, Ad Yahoo. There's so many names, but the best one, of course, is the one that was given to his son. This is why Yahusha said, the name, your name, the name that you gave me. And so the name of Yahusha has Yahoo in it because Yahoo is the name of God who is Yahuwah, the more complete version of that name. And so the question is, well, does it mean that uh, our form of religion is now accepting uh, that Yahoo is the name of God? Well, I don't know, <laughs> because in the article of Brother Joe Ventilacion, he does mention name of God, and he looked, he points to Yahoo. But we know for a fact that Brother Bob's, uh, in his program, they insist that God does not have a personal name. Perhaps what they will say is, well, Yahoo is the name of God, but it's not a personal name, right? Maybe that's what they're going to say. And so what is a personal name? Personal name, according to Webster's, is a name by which an individual is intimately known or designated. And so that's the personal name. And so if Yahoo or the Tetragrammaton, okay, is not the personal name of God, then the question I want to ask Brother Joe, Brother Bob, is if the Tetragrammaton is not the personal name of God, then what kind of name is it, right? And so I'm lo really looking forward to an open dialogue concerning this topic. I mean, if Brother Joe wouldn't mind, after all, he is from Harvard, and I want to be able to understand how Harvard, Harvard scholars think about the name of Yahuwah Abba. So hopefully we will engage in this open conversation, open dialogue about the name of Yahuwah our God. But as for me, I believe Yahuwah is the personal name of God. Why? In Exodus 3.13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites to say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And so here we have the Israelites who have a special relationship with who? God. And so Moses asks God the question, if the Israelites who belong to, uh, to you, you're, you're the one who's going to set them free. If they ask for your name, what shall I tell them? And so Yahuwah responds by giving the following answer. God said to Moses, say to the Israelites, quote, unquote, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. What does that mean? That is the, that's the tetragrammaton, right? And so Yahuwah, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And so that name concealed by L-O-R-D in all caps is the name Yahuwah. And so Yahuwah is the name that Yahuwah wants us to refer to him 
from generation to generation. It is his name forever. And so if the Tetragrammaton, Yahuwah, is not the personal name of God that we are to use and remember from generation to generation, then what does it mean? That's the question I pose to our former religion. But let's go back to the question. Question is, uh, my question is, does Isaiah 9-6 refer to Christ Yahusha's essence or divinity, or that's just how others will call him in the future? Some claim that the verse supports Christ's hypostasis or hypostatic union being both God and man. How many here have heard of the phrase hypostatic union? Probably none of us before. I've heard this uh, mentioned before, but according, so what is that? What is hypostatic union? According to Wikipedia, hypostatic union is a technical term in Christian theology employed in mainstream Christology, was invented, by the way, by the Catholic Church, to describe the union of Christ's humanity and divinity in one hypostasis or individual existence. The most basic explanation for the hypostatic union is Jesus Christ, Yahushua, being both God and man. He is both perfectly divine and perfectly human. So the hypostat uh, hypostatic union is what they refer to as Yahushua being both God and man. He is a God-man. He is fully man, fully human. And at the same time, he's also what? Fully God. Fully God, fully man. That's hypostatic union. And so the question is, Isaiah 9.6, does it describe the hypostatic union we find? They say it is found in Yahushua. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is what it says. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this is a prophecy in Isaiah. And we know who the fulfillment of this prophecy is. Who is it? Yahushua. Because he's the one referred to here as the Son. And so the question is, does this prophecy testify to the hypostatic union, meaning that the Son is also God, that the Son is both man and God. No, it doesn't say that in the passage. It may seem that it says that, because when you look at Isaiah 9-6, it mentions the Son, and then the Bible says his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. What else? Mighty God. And so the Son, who is Yahushua, is also called Mighty God. Does that demonstrate hypostatic union? No. Why? Why do we say that this does not demonstrate hypostatic union? That the Son is not by nature God in this passage. Because if we are going to say that the Son is God in nature, because he is to be called mighty God, we're going to have a big contradiction. What is that? If you take a look at the passage in question, the son will also be called what? Everlasting father. Do you see that in the passage? So if the reasoning goes, the son is also God because 
he will be called mighty God, then it follows the son must also be called what? Father. And those who believe in the Trinity, those who believe in the hypostatic union of Christ, they do not believe that the son is the father and the father is the son. They believe they are different persons. This is why you have the so-called three persons in one Godhead, three persons of the Trinity. The son is distinct, different from the father. And so we now have a big conundrum, don't we? If the son is called everlasting father, then it contradicts this idea of the so-called Trinity because the son cannot be the father. But you know what? There's absolutely no contradiction. And this passage does not teach that Yahushua is God's nature. In fact, the key that unlocks the proper understanding of this passage is found in one word. You know what it is? If you locate this word, this word will unlock what this passage tells us and what it does not tell us. What is that one word? Do you know what it is? What do you think it is? Huh? Yes, it is that term name. Take note. It does not say, and his names will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When you read this passage, it seems, doesn't it? It seems as though the son is going to be called by one, two, three, four, five names here. It seems that the son is going to be called Wonderful. He's going to be called Counselor. He's going to be called Mighty God. He's going to be called Everlasting Father. He's going to be called Prince of Peace. That's not what it says. The Bible says, and his name, one name, not many names, but one name is going to be used to identify this son. What do we call this name? It is a theophoric name, right? It's a royal name to be given to the son. This name is one really long name, not many names, but one really long name. And what is that one really long name? According to the translation of the Jews from the Holy Scriptures, according to the Masoretic text, for a child is born unto us, a son is given unto us, and the government is upon his shoulder, and his name, right? How many names? One name. And his name is called Peleos El Gibor Abiyadzah Shalom. So the one name mentioned in Isaiah 9:6 happens to have the term El happens to have the term God. And so how is it used? What does Peleos El Gibor Abiyadzar Shalom mean? In the footnote, the Hebrew name Peleos El Gibor Abiyadzar Shalom is translated as wonderful in counsel is God the mighty, the everlasting father, the ruler of peace. So Isaiah 9.6 is not many names that is to be used to identify the son. Rather, it's one name. And that is Peleos El Gibor Abi Adsar Shalom, which means what? Wonderful in counsel is God the mighty, the everlasting father, the ruler of peace. So when we look now at Isaiah 9.6 with this one name in mind, now we can see clearly the purpose of this passage. For a child is born unto us, a son is given unto us, and the government is upon his shoulder. And his name, one name, is called Wonderful in Counsel is God the Mighty, the Everlasting Father, the Ruler of Peace. And so the Father refers to God the Mighty, right? And the Son is to be identified 
with the source of the government that is to be given him. That's why he's given that name, not to teach that he is God, but to teach of the government that he has, the authority that he will be given comes from who? God, the everlasting father. This is why we need to understand that this was fulfilled in Matthew 28, 18. So Isaiah was teaching about what would be what would happen to the son. The son would be given government or authority over all things. In Matthew 28, 18, the father, then Yahusha came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's why he is to be given the name Peleos El Digor Shalom. Okay. So Isaiah 9, 6 doesn't prove or doesn't teach the hypostatic union. Rather, it teaches that Yahushua depends upon who? Yahuwah, our God. The works that he does, he does because of God working in him. The authority he has comes from Yahuwah, our God. Okay. That is our lesson for tonight. Thank you for attending. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Father, Yahuwah, our God Almighty, thank you so much for the clarity of your holy words. Thank you for continuing to enlighten us. Help us, Father, that we will develop a strong and firm fellowship with you, that we will seek your will in everything in our life. Help us, Father, that when we do look for you and your will, please show yourself to your people by means of the promised holy spirit father we are preparing ourselves for our special worship service this coming saturday we know that on pentecost on the day when your people of old met together for worship to celebrate the feast of weeks you have given them provision you provided for all their needs during our time we also believe that you continue to give us everything we need to carry out your will. And so we will assemble ourselves together this coming Saturday so that we can honor you and honor your son as we celebrate the Feast of Weeks. Yahusha, our King, may you please be with us in our special worship service. May your spirit be felt in our hearts. And on that day, we beg you, direct our thoughts direct our mind to our special function whatever it may be because we firmly believe you have a purpose for every one of us there's something we can do for the benefit of your body show this to us on that day that we can fulfill the purposes of our calling father please continue to work in us forgive us all our sins Heal us all our sicknesses and make us every day to be worthy before your presence. Thank you for helping us understand your words. Continue to move our hearts and enlighten our minds as we prepare for our salvation. We ask and beg everything loving Abba in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.